Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Let's start in and talk about um, um, what every real estate investor should be doing and watching. So in the macro economy, there's five key um, macroeconomic variables that every investor should be should be watching uh, at all times. Uh, first one is population growth. There's 340 million people in the United States. We're growing at seven tenths of 1% or 3 million additional people every year. That means we need to build a complete city the size of Denver, Colorado to give those people a place to eat, sleep, shop, work, play, pray, uh, and uh, store things. Um, Second one is GDP growth. Gross domestic product is basically the output of our country. And you can see that it was running uh, right a little over 2%, just under 2.5% between the Great Recession of 08, 09 and the COVID recession. And the forecast is that it's going to be a little lower, kind of around 2% going forward from here. And of course, we just had a two quarters of negative GDP growth, but we expect that to rebound back. So um, if all is well, we kind of continue along that way. But the number one thing that drives demand for real estate is employment growth. And every time someone's employed, they need a place to work. They also then need a place to live and a place to shop and everything else. So employment growth is the one key thing to watch. And you should watch that based on each city that you're going to make investments in. And you can see that that looks like it's going to be a little bit lower in the uh, in the next decade going forward than it was in the previous decade. Um, go forward here. We're um, on the uh, on the cost side, we obviously want to watch inflation. And right now, um, the federal budget office, uh, or excuse me, the congressional budget office uh, we, we had about a 2.1% average inflation between the last two recessions. We've had a huge spike, as you all know, that's still going on now. But the forecast that Congress sees going forward is around 3% is, uh, is what they're expecting, even though they all try and target more like two. So think about the fact that the cost of operating your property and getting uh, other goods and things like that are going to be a little higher. But then the one key thing that you all want to be watching very carefully is interest rates. And in residential real estate or in home ownership, you can get a 30-year mortgage. When you're buying an apartment building or a commercial building, an office, industrial, retail building, kind of the max you're going to find is about a 10-year loan. Sometimes in apartments, you might squeak it to 15. But uh, so we watch the 10-year treasury, which is the known as the risk-free rate, okay? And you can go to um, uh, the um, uh, Bureau of Economic Analysis, BEA.gov, and actually sign up for their stuff where they keep track of that. This is one that you probably want to be watching. I have it on my phone and I can check it every day. Um, it has, you know, it was back in, uh, back in 2000 uh, at uh, around four and a half, five percent 
The 10-year Treasury hit its all-time ever in history low of 0.6% right after COVID started, and then it popped back up, uh, and today it's running right around uh, 3%, and they expect it to kind of move back up to uh, 3.5% or so over the next uh, decade. That's going to tell you what your cost of capital, what your cost of a loan is going to be, because you're going to get, in essence, your loan based on 10-year treasury plus a risk premium over that of one or two percent, depending upon how good your credit is. So if it's two over 10 year, you could have gotten a three percent mortgage for 10 years back, uh, you know, just last year. Today, with it at three, you're talking a five percent uh, mortgage as a as a minimum and probably even a little bit more than that. So uh, looking back in history, you can see that economic growth periods here, um, both uh, GDP and employment growth, which basically move together, are um, uh, are fairly long, five to ten years in length. Whereas recessions are always very short. So uh, expect that we're probably in for a relatively long um, uh, period going forward here um, of of economic growth. Although many people think we might hit a recession with the Federal Reserve uh, raising rates and trying to slow us down. So. Since 1990, I've been doing market cycle research. We know the economy goes through cycles. We just saw that. Well, real estate markets go through cycles as well. And there's two parts to the cycle. The physical cycle, which is demand and supply for space. And that drives occupancy levels or vacancy rates. And whatever that occupancy level is, is going to drive rent growth, okay? And when you think about it, the income you receive off of any one of your investments comes from occupancy increase plus rent increase, and that gives you your income growth, which is what you're trying to kind of forecast as you go forward. We'll talk about real estate pricing second um, in the second part of this, uh, which is driven by capital flows. So back in 1990, I developed my market cycle research. You can see here, I've got 16 points on the cycle because real estate cycles typically go through two economic cycles. And since they're typically in the five to 10 year range, historically real estate has had 16 year cycles. When you're at the bottom and you have low occupancy, anytime you've got too much of any good or service, what do you do? You drop the rate to get to move it, right? So you have negative rent growth at the bottom, points one, two, three there. Then you have moderately positive rent growth till you hit point six here, which is also the long-term occupancy average, which is different for each city and each property type. As an example, New York City's long-term average occupancy rate for office was 91% or a 9% vacancy rate. For Denver, Colorado, a smaller high growth market, it was 87% uh, or a 13% vacancy rate. Then rents start to rise rapidly till you get to 0.8 on the cycle here, which I've got in green, which is the cost feasible new construction level. And what do I mean by that? When uh, it costs you $400 a square foot to build a new office building. And investors are looking for a 10% rate of return. 10% of 400 means I need a net income of $40 a square foot to cost justify building that new building. So remember that 0.8 as our point at which we typically sell a lot of new construction. And then occupancies keep going up because we can't you know, immediately supply the market with more space. It takes a couple of years to build new stuff. And then we hit the peak at point 11. And that's when demand for space and supply for space 
are growing at the same rate. What we'd love is to sit at 0.11 all the time in every market going forward. That would be fantastic. Although one of two things happens. Typically, demand starts to slow down because of a recession, and we go into uh, phase three there, the hyper supply phase, or we overbuild the market and put up too much of what we need, hence pushing things down a little bit. We go back through the long-term average of 0.14 and then get low and negative growth um, in, uh, in the uh, recession phase, if you will, there uh, over on uh, points 15 and 16. So I did a study that I'm very well known for. You can see we got negative rent growth at the bottom there, points one and two. It started to turn positive at 0.6, it got 4%. And that was the rate of inflation between 1968 and 1997 when I did that study. And then you see in the green there in the expansion phase, it's growing really well, well above the rate of inflation. And then it kind of peaks out at the top uh, at 11% and then starts to uh, slow down um, to 10, 6, uh, back to kind of inflation at 0.14 and then low and negative at the bottom. If we look at the most recent 20 years or 21 years here, you see very similar results, a little bit more negative at the bottom there, and but you can see the top here at 10.3% when you hit that peak occupancy. So knowing where you are in the cycle in your city is the key to thinking about good investments and all kinds of investment decisions. So every quarter, I put out my market cycle report. Here is where the different property types are. They're all in the expansion phase of the cycle, which means there's more demand than supply. And let's break that down, if you will, and look at it city by city, if you will. Each city, in whatever city you're investing in, you need to understand what's driving the growth of your city. We do that by looking at economic-based industries. An economic-based industry exports a good or service outside of the local economy that brings money in to make it grow. To understand that concept, let's take Detroit, Michigan. Detroit, Michigan is driven by the auto industry. If the auto industry is doing well, Detroit's doing well. If it's not doing well, Detroit isn't doing well, okay? For every economic base worker that's building a car in Detroit, you need two local workers who are in the grocery store, the hospital, the school, the a gas station, the um, person, uh, you know, doing cleanup, whatever, the, a, a, a lawyer, an accountant, whatever that are doing that. So we monitor the economic base employers. You can figure that out for your city by going to bls.gov and going to the quarterly commercial employment <clears throat> uh, and wages uh, tables. And here's, and you'll get these slides so you can do that. You, this is the steps to go through to get that. But let's just take a look at uh, Boston as an example here. And what we do is we take the percentage of workers in Boston and divide it by the percentage of workers in all of the United States. So anytime you're above one uh, above 1.0, as a matter of fact, anytime you're above 1.2 or 20% higher than the national average, that's an economic-based industry. So for Boston, it's in yellow here, information, finance and insurance, professional and technical services, management of companies, in other words, company headquarters, educational services. Boston has more universities than any other uh, city uh, in the country, by the way. And healthcare, they've got uh, Harvard's medical system there. So if you look over to the right at the employment growth, you can see that 
the um, those are all above a 1.2 location quotient, which is what's driving that city. If we look at Chicago, totally different wholesale trade, transportation and warehousing, that's trucking and that kind of stuff. Financial and insurance, because Chicago is where the um, Commodities Board, I know you got the Stock Exchange in New York, but in Chicago, you got the Commodities Board, which is where they trade uh, grain and corn futures and all that kind of stuff. Uh, finance and insurance, uh, real estate and leasing. Um, and Chicago also has a lot of universities, hence the education is high there. You look at Denver, different stuff. Um, we have a lot of oil and gas uh, companies uh, in Denver, and we've got a 1.5 or 50% higher than the US average. Um, and you see other things like information, again, finance and insurance, um, arts and entertainment and recreation, you know, obviously big ski, ski, uh, ski countries up here. So, um, and you can see that this actually works when you look at the um, employment, the total employment in the United States, the black line, and the total occupied space in uh, in three of the major property types here, which are the um, office, retail, and, um, and industrial space. So let's take and look at where we are right now. For office space, all over the board. It really depends upon what's going on in the marketplace, um, whether or not they're supplying a lot of new properties, and whether or not they've been drawing people in. I have Denver highlighted here because I'm from Denver. You can see that it's near its bottom, but just starting to improve. The numbers after that tell you where it has moved from its previous cycle. So Denver was at 0.1 in the first quarter of 2022, but has moved up to 0.2. You have a lot of markets in the growth phase, <clears throat> so some place to consider investing in. And you've got some markets in the hyper supply as well as the recession phase. You probably heard if you've been watching the national news that a lot of people are moving out of really expensive places like San Francisco and moving to uh, nicer places to live where the cost of living isn't as high like Austin, Texas, uh, as a good example. Okay, If we look at industrial, you can see that almost every market in the country is at its peak occupancy. Demand for space is huge. I call it the Amazon effect. People buying more stuff online. And therefore, we've got really high occupancy. Um, we're actually short space. Uh, you may have heard, actually, I hold off on talking about Amazon anymore um, for a little bit here till I get to my forecast for you. Um, if we look at 2021 annual rent growth, look at this. Some of the major <coughs> port markets like Miami, New Jersey, Inland Empire in California, the two largest uh, uh, ports uh, for bringing stuff into the country are uh, Los Angeles and Long Beach. <coughs> 11% annual growth. And even places like Houston, Texas, above inflation, which was 2% in 21 at 4.3%. If we look at apartments, pretty much every market at its peak, some over the top, and that's only because of having a number of new properties coming online uh, right now, <coughs> where their occupancy is coming down a bit. I expect that those will probably move back to peak occupancy here, here over the next year. And again, I'll talk more about that when I forecast, okay? Retail, probably a surprise to some of you, all are at peak occupancy. Every market in the country is at peak occupancy. Why? Because we've had continued moderate growth in retail, even throughout COVID, because you had the essential 
uh, retailers like Home Depot and Lowe's and fast food restaurants and stuff like that. And if their sales grew, that means that they want to open more stores. But we've been taking retail out of uh, out of the supply side. We've been converting uh, retail into apartments, into close-in warehouse, sometimes even in office space over the last decade. So low supply with moderate demand actually works. And then hotels, again, kind of all over the, the map here. And uh, as you know, a lot of hotels had to shut down, but they reopened. We break hotels into two parts, um, basically recreation hotels and resorts and places you want to go see things. Business hotels still hurting a little bit because we haven't gotten back to that, although conferences are back again. So it really depends there. Okay, so let's go back in history and just do a kind of a quick um, review what happens. Again, it's demand and supply. Here you see in the 1970s when I started into this business that uh, demand, the yellow bar, was growing eh, average 2% in the first half of that decade, but supply was growing the black bar at about 5%. So more supply than demand and occupancies dropped off. From 75 on, you can see that there was more demand than supply and occupancies rose, and we got to a 95% occupancy or 5% vacancy rate by 1979. In the 1980s, we built a ton of new office space. As a matter of fact, we averaged 7.7% a year average growth over that entire decade. And if you do the math compounding that number, we more than doubled the amount of office space in the United States in one decade. And 80% of that new construction was in the suburban office markets. We literally created suburban office markets in the 1980s. But the most incredible thing on this graph is the demand growth population was growing at 1%. Baby boomers, people you know, like me in their 60s, um, were coming of age, getting jobs, and going to work. And uh, employment growth was growing at 1.6%, 60% higher than population growth. But demand for office was growing at 3.8%, more than double employment growth. Why? Because the economic base of the United States changed. In 1960, we were a manufacturing-based country. 25% of all workers worked in manufacturing. Only 8% worked in office using jobs. Today, only 8% of all workers work in manufacturing jobs and over 30% work in office using jobs. We're a technology and information uh, growing economy now. 1990s come along and with all that oversupply, we literally shut down new construction. You can see less than one half of 1% in 92, 3, 4, and 5. Demand growth growing at around almost 2% each year. And nice matchup of demand and supply in 1998 and 1999. The decade of the first 2000s, you can see um, demand and supply kind of leading and lagging each other as they go along, and that creates a cycle. Negative demand growth in 2001 when the technology bubble burst negative man growth in 2009 during the Great Recession. And then this decade, more demand than supply in office until 2018 or uh, through 2018. And then in 2019, a little bit more um, uh, supply than demand, but not too bad. So we were in okay shape until we hit, uh, until we had COVID. And with COVID, negative demand for office growth. 2022 so far, um, looks like we are getting some positive demand back. 
Um, but we got a lot of new supply coming up. So we're oversupplying that, which uh, makes office a risky place to be today. And then we expect it to somewhat balance out, hopefully over the next few years. Office is really the biggest jump ball. Are people going back to the office? Are they gonna work from home? Uh, I think we are not gonna know that for two to three years uh, coming up, okay? So remember we said that demand growth, 2%, um, interest rates, 2% in the past. You can see that we've kept supply um, kind of right around that number or below it for the years. And now going forward in the forecast from 2023 on, we're well below that, more like down around 1%. That's really good news for all of us in the fact that we are uh, not going to oversupply the marketplace. And you know that to be true because the cost of building materials and the cost of construction labor have gone up a lot. And for any of you that have tried to go out and do a new development, the time it takes to get uh, approved and permits and zoning and everything else is just really, really difficult these days. Okay, so let's talk about a forecast here. We're gonna look at, uh, I, I model each market separately, but this is the national. So you can see occupancy levels, the blue line here now over the past number of cycles. The high back in the early 80s, bottoming out around 90, 91, peaking in 86, bottoming out uh, with the tech bubble bursting in 2002, uh, peak occupancy, uh, at in 2006, a bottom in 2009, uh, good occupancy peaking in 2018, and then starting to slow down. And of course, I think we hit this COVID drop here. And then you can see that rent growth, the red line, follows that cycle very uh, closely. And the correlation between the two is 79%. So if you know where occupancy is going, you know where rents are going to go, and that's going to drive your income. Okay. So my forecast looking forward is that again, a lot of markets uh, still in the growth phase. You can see places to stay away from Denver. I think by the end of the year, we'll have moved from 0.2 where it is today up to 0.5 uh, on the cycle, just finishing a recovery and moving forward. Industrial, you can see um, very similar following the cycles, very high occupancy right now, uh, a little bit of a fall off right now, and you probably, uh, saw on the news that Amazon was uh, going to get out of some of the leases that they had signed. And you go, wait a minute, is this a problem? Well, here's the fairly simple story. Uh, uh, online sales over the past five or so years have gone from eight to nine to 10 to 11 to 12% of all retail sales in this country. COVID hit and it jumped to 18%. So that's a 50% increase. Amazon assumed that was gonna continue. So when COVID hit, they started uh, leasing up and signing uh, agreements to build new space to you know, increase their space by almost 50%. Realize that in 2019, before COVID, Amazon leased 25% of all warehouse space leased in the country in 2019. That is huge. They're, they were the main driver of demand. Uh, for for 2019. Now, with now that COVID is over, it's dropped back to 12 and a half percent of retail sales coming from uh, the internet. And Amazon went, "Oops, we thought it was going to stay up at 18. We've got we're, we've got too much you know space here. We need to get rid of some of it." So that's what's happening. The good news is that every retailer to be successful going forward 
has to have an internet presence and be able to ship to you. So now retailers that were getting outbid by Amazon are able to finally get space. And building new stuff is hard to do and getting approvals to build warehouse space, especially close in is even harder. If you can get um, a property zone for a warehouse in a city, you're golden. You're gonna make some good money on that on that investment. So uh, industrial, in my opinion, absolute number one uh, property type to invest in right now. And again, almost every market at the peak, the only markets that aren't there are ones that are just a little bit too much supply coming on or Amazon having uh, backed out of uh, some leases in those. And look at the annual absorption by market here. Dallas-Fort Worth in 2021, 13 million square feet of space, uh, right? And even small places like Jacksonville, Florida, 70 million square feet or 70,000 square feet of uh, space uh, uh, being leased up in, in those markets, okay? Apartments, you can see here that the cycle has been kind of low. Um, with, uh, with COVID, um, things have just shot through the roof. Everybody wanted to be you know, uh, out uh, and on their own. And with housing prices having gone up since COVID hit, um, think about this. Normally people rent a, uh, an apartment when they come out of school and that's either high school at the age of 18 or college at the age of 22. The average age of a first time home buyer in the United States is 33 years old. So they're in an apartment for typically a decade or more. They've now saved up enough money to, um, to buy a place. And uh, when those prices went up, now they can't buy. So they're stuck. So instead of people leaving the rental market, they're stuck there for longer until they get more of a down payment or until interest rates come back down. So um, we see occupancies being high for the next couple of years, very high at 95.5%, which is way over the long-term average number and very high peak. And as you know, very, very high rental growth. Last year, national average was uh, 12% rent growth uh, in apartments and 13% in industrial. And we expect those high numbers to continue, although they will start to slow down here uh, to lower numbers. As a matter of fact, in some markets where we had really big jumps, um, we're not getting any additional rent growth right now. Like Denver, it was 25% rent growth. Okay, So if we look at what's going on here, again, majority of the markets at their peak some of them over the top and because our host is from austin you can see austin's a little bit over the top the demand there has been one of the strongest in the country but we just happen to have a bunch of new apartments coming online and most of those are downtown uh very high-end and expensive apartments too so so that's going to make its occupancy drop off just just a little bit okay retail highest ever occupancy in uh, 2019, we obviously had a hit with COVID, but it's bouncing right back. Um, you can see rental growth not quite as strong and actually dropping off right now because when you did have like a Sears move out, whoever's moving in probably is going to pay the same amount of rent as Sears. So the rent growth there, uh, not real strong. And uh, again, every market uh, next year still at Peacock. And then hotels, hotels are very seasonal. So this these bouncy numbers are showing you, you know, the different four quarters here, but you can see the low season line there on the bottom and the high season. COVID hit and shut things down. 
but we are uh, kind of bouncing back uh, into uh, into a similar number here as it goes forward. Hotel is obviously the most risky of our property types because you lease it by the day, as opposed to apartments by the year, as opposed to industrial uh, or retail in the three to 10 year, industrial in the five to 10 year and office in the five to 10 year range on a lease, okay? And it's kind of, there, there's the actual uh, smoothed out uh, hotel occupancies and, and where it's going, okay? So my hotel market forecast, pretty much all of them hitting the growth phase right now. Should we have a recession, we'll see those all end up over in the hyper supply and recession phase. Okay, so all I have talked about so far is the income side of real estate. Demand and supply drive occupancies. Occupancies drive rent growth. Occupancies plus rent give you income. Now let's talk about prices. And there is a financial cycle or capital flowing that drives prices. And by that, I mean, when people think the economy is gonna do well and they're willing to take more risk, or we call it risk on, what do they do? They dump money into the stock market. And as money flows in, stock prices rise. When they think there's gonna be a problem, what do they do? They start selling their stocks, pulling the money out. And as money comes out, prices drop. Same thing happens in real estate. And real estate, income producing real estate or commercial real estate is the third largest asset class out there. Your choices are stocks, bonds, and real estate. Okay. Now, I also need to say that I need to break real estate into two major groupings for you. One is home ownership and one is income producing. I didn't say commercial because in income producing, I include apartments which most people don't think of as commercial. On the home ownership side, you've got single family homes, condos, and townhomes. Home ownership is a use asset, just like your car. It's expensive, you typically finance it, you use it, you have to maintain it, you have to feed it with gas and or electricity to keep it operating. And if you were to sell it, you have to replace it with another use asset because you gotta live someplace, right? Everybody that ever sees my presentation going, why don't you do this for housing? And the answer to that question is very simple. Houses don't have an occupancy rate or a rental rate. You own it. So homes are 100% occupied all the time, period, paragraph. Okay, so there's no income coming out of house. If you rent it, you just moved it over to the income side of the balance sheet. And there are plenty of single family homes that are in the rental market and that's fine they compete against apartments so we'll consider that so 18 trillion dollars in u.s income producing real estate is 22 percent of the marketplace and most institutions have between 10 and 20 percent of their investments in uh in income producing real estate wealthy families we do a study every year on them their average is 24% invested in real estate. So when I turned 60, my financial advisor said to me, Glenn, now that you're 60, the standard is normally you invest 60% in stocks and 40% in bonds. Now that you're getting older, you should switch it over to 60% in bonds and 40% in stocks. And I've always got my computer and I pull up this one slide. And I say to the guy, wait a minute, Let's take a look at the risk-free rate of the US 10-year treasury. 
and let's take a look at it over my lifetime. So from 1953 to 2020, the average yield, the average interest rate on the 10-year treasury has been 5.74%, okay? But normally when someone's doing a financial analysis for you, they take 30 years worth of history. So I'm gonna take 81 to 2020 here. And I look at the total return. So I bought a bond for $1,000 and I got a 5.7% rate of return, which means on a $1,000 bond, I got $57 a year uh, in, in return, okay? The total return, however, is 8.77%. How is that possible? Well, if interest rates go down, which they have since 1981, if I bought a $1,000 bond earning, I'm gonna make it simple here, 6%, and interest rates drop in half to 3%, I can sell that bond to somebody else for $2,000 because it's got a 6% coupon and they, when I sell it to them, they're only supposed to get a 3% yield. So the price appreciation is another 3% above that. However, if interest rates are gonna go up as, they, as we expect them to do going forward, from 1953 to 1973, when interest rates went from two and a half to the long-term average of 5.7, the total return on the bonds was only 1.9. You lost money, you lost principal on your bond if you had to sell it. And the total average return between 53 and 81, when the 10-year treasury peaked at 15%, was 3.9%. So I said, I want a zero allocation to bonds, and I want to roll that into, uh, I'm, I'm with uh, Tia Kreff, which is the university's um, uh, it's a national university um, uh, retirement plan, Teachers Insurance Annuity Association. And I'm 60% in real estate and I've been earning over 11% for the last decade in, in, the, uh, in the net real estate fund, okay? So there is a company out there, uh, you probably all heard of Moody's. Uh, Moody's tracks every commercial real estate transaction in this country over $2.5 million. And you can see that transactions were running about $20 billion in the first quarter of 01. Hopefully you can see my little uh, pointer here. They peaked in 07, in the first quarter of 07 at $160 billion. They dropped to $15 billion in 09. Since 2016, we've hit that peak of $160 billion four times. A little bit of a decline there in the second quarter of 2020 when COVID hit, but it's bounced right back up. And um, so prices, the orange line or the CPPI, the Commercial Property Price Index, you've probably all seen the Case-Shiller Home Price Index that they put in newspapers talking about where home prices are. By the way, the, the average home price in the United States today, single family home price is now $430,000, okay? And you can see prices here going from uh, uh, it's, it's the right hand here, going from a index value of 65 to 100 in 07, bouncing down, and today being at about 170. Well, let's break that down by property type. And what you see here is that um, today, if we took the peak price that we found in 07, all the property types together are 60% higher today than they were in 2007, 14 years ago. 
Apartments are 240% higher or 100%, 140% over what they were. Retail is up 14, industrial is up 48. CBD or central business district downtown office is up 12% and suburban office is up 22%, okay? And if we look at it over the past 12 months, you can see that office has, um, is down 6% uh, from pre-COVID, malls are down 8%, industrial is up 51%, apartments are up 20% pre-COVID, self-storage, you know, mini warehouse is up 65% since then. It's it's a hot property type that uh, is in big demand today. So prices, that's, that's a way to kind of look at prices. So we always express real estate values based on cap rates, or as you probably all know at the cash on cash return. If I buy it, for a million and it earns me uh, 90 a year, that's a 9% cash on cash return. Well, in 2001, cap rates were around 9%. They dropped to 6.5% in 2007. When the Great Recession hit, prices dropped and the cap rate came back up to eight. It slowly has worked its way down to an average of right around six or 6.5% today. For apartments, it's only five. And you go, wow, so real estate's really expensive today compared to history. You say, yep, that's true. But we're in a lower yielding environment. Since the Great Recession, interest rates have only been 2%, whereas they were 5.7 over the last 60 years. So we have to live with lower yields, lower income returns. So let's take a look at how much extra income you get over the risk-free rate of a 10-year treasury today? And the answer is, back in 01, you were getting average 4%. In 07, you were only getting around 2%. Today, you're getting somewhere from three and a half in apartments up to almost six in office. So on a relative basis, in other words, I got to make an investment today, real estate is a good relative value. It's a good buy based on those prices, okay? And I believe that's going to continue. Why? Because in my now 40 plus year history in real estate, when I started in the 70s, local buyer, local seller, local bank doing the financing. In the 1980s, along came institution, pension funds and endowments, national buyers, national sellers, national financing came up. In the 1990s, real estate got its first access to the public capital markets the stock market through REITs, Real Estate Investment Trust, there are about 200 publicly traded companies investing in every property type out there. Uh, and, the, and the debt market, the bond market, through uh, uh, CMBS, Commercial Mortgage Backed Securities. But since 2000, real estate has gone global. If you're in one of the big, we call them gateway markets of the United States, the largest cities, New York, San Francisco, LA, Chicago, Boston, you, um, when you put a property up for sale, it's gonna go, uh, uh, there, there'll be 20 bidders, 10 US and 10 uh, foreign investors, okay? So this shows investments around the world. So in 2021, the United States invested $11.8 billion into Germany. That was a 27% increase over the previous year. Germany, number four, on this list invested 5.6 billion, about half in the United States. That was a 1% decrease from previous years. If you ever think about uh, going into um, another country to invest, um, 
you need some local knowledge, just like you need to know your own markets here in the United States. What's happening in Chicago is totally different from Boston in each property type. You add one major additional risk, and that is currency rate exchange. The company that I worked for for 17 years, we did a lot of work in Mexico, and in one year we made a 30% return. However, the Mexican peso dropped against the US dollar by 32%, so it was a negative 2% return in US dollars. So currency exchange rate, very, very uh, careful to watch and risky and very, very hard to um, hedge against that. But I'll give you the reason, one of the main reasons I think that we're gonna see a lot of foreign investment continue to come into the US. In 2019, the top price office building to sell in the United States was in New York City, and it sold for a 4% cap rate. That's a 4% cash on cash return. Class A office building in London went for a 2% cap rate, and a Class A office building in both Hong Kong and Tokyo went for a 1% cap rate. So to a European investor, US real estate looks like a 50% off deal, and to an Asian investor, it looks like a, uh, 75% off deal. So the stock market's volatile. Bond yields are low and you're going to lose money as interest rates go up. Real estate's the darling investment and capital is going to flow. And the international investors are pushing the institutional investors down to smaller markets. And uh, the wealthy families are moving into third tier markets, smaller markets as well. So my conclusions, economic and real estate cycles can be long or short. We had two quarters of negative GDP uh, here in 2022. I should say 2022. Uh, and uh, what's next? I think it'll turn positive again. Uh, but unique times because we've had strong employment growth, which is really where the demand for real estate comes from. So watch the employment growth for the US and for your city. Key thing to do. And then watch demand and watch the supply side too. You're looking at the demand from employment growth. Look at the supply side, how much new properties are coming on the market, okay? You can get that from your commercial brokers. They all have that data. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, watch, watch for that, okay? And supply is gonna be slower because of those costs, right? So we're in a growth phase now, but it's really market and property type dependent. Okay, on the, financial cycle, on the financial cycle, capital flows drive prices. We've got volatile stocks and rising interest rates, which drives money towards us. Think about who are the tenants, COVID haves versus COVID have-nots. If you were an essential retailer, you were COVID have. If you were a restaurant, you were COVID have-not, but that's over and we're uh, recovering and we're recovering strongly, okay? So <laughs> think about the tenants and the property you're going to buy and whether or not they have any risk against another pandemic. Okay. The world is awash in cash. And by that, I mean, it used to be that on average, uh, U.S. consumers saved a trillion dollars a year. And that doesn't mean they put it in a savings account. That means they put it into their retirement accounts, into their stock accounts, or into investing in real estate properties or whatever. During COVID, because we couldn't spend it, our savings went from $1 trillion to $4 trillion. And today, the last number says it's $5.3 trillion. So there are a lot of people sitting on a lot of cash that they want to put and invest someplace. Okay. So we'll see what happens from there. Um, you know, with interest rates rising, will people invest uh, pure cash and buy all 100% cash or will they finance 
at, uh, at a higher interest rate. We've had conservative debt financing in this past cycle. In previous cycles, all the way up till 2009, anyone could easily get 75%, 80% loan to value on a property. Today, from a bank, maximum 60%. In apartments, you might get to that 70 or 75% number. So there's less speculative stuff going on, okay? Uh, low new construction, and make sure that in your thinking, you're differentiating between that homeownership and that commercial income producing. Return.